when we start to understand the agency that we have as leaders to not only challenge those beliefs, but kick off the change that we want to see in our organizations and the communities, like that is extremely powerful. Leaders of the future are going to be interested in two different types of ROI, right? A traditional return on investment, but also you know, how are you creating things in your organization in a way that perpetuates more of what you're wanting to see? Hi there, this is Ben Morton and you're listening to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's totally free. This week we're talking about and flipping the idea of naivety with Joshua Berry. Joshua Berry is a world-class facilitator of change and recent author of Dare to Be Naive, Thinking Bigger to Create Business, Success and Joy. He is also the Managing Director and Co-Founder of Econic, an innovation, transformation and strategy consulting company and certified B Corporation. Joshua describes himself as someone dedicated to practicing unlearning, identifying limiting beliefs and shifting business practices. Hopefully you'll get a little of all of that from today's episode. But before we get into this episode, do head over to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com where you can sign up for my 10 for 10 leadership course. It's totally free, it's bite-sized, and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I get asked about. It's also a course that gets consistently great feedback. Now though, and without any further delay, let's get into this week's episode, which I know you're going to get huge, huge value from. Joshua, a very warm welcome to the podcast. I've very much been looking forward to today's episode, having been reading your new book over the past couple of weeks. But first of all, how are you today? Ben, I'm doing wonderful. Uh, We've hit Friday. Uh, Kids are finishing off spring break. Uh, It's been a great week so far. Thanks for asking. All is good in the world by the sounds of it. Absolutely. A little bit of snow on the ground here in Nebraska in the Midwest of the United States, but we're, we're doing all right. Well, as we're recording this, I'm hoping it's just starting to warm up in the UK. We've had a cold few weeks, so I I and the rest of the country is very much ready for spring here, I think. Excellent. So let's talk about the, the new book, right? Dare to be Naive is the title with the opening sentence, which I love because it grabs you from the get-go. Um, I dare you to be more naive. Tell us, Joshua, what do you mean by that? Why would we want to even think about doing that? Good question. Uh, I will tell you the the publisher and the editor uh, fought to try to change that a couple of times. But, um, you know, it comes from uh, really a, an important space. And, and it came out through the research that I did for this book. You see, Ben, uh, you and I uh, use the word naive differently than our ancestors did right? Your great-grandfather Ben, right? Uh, Likely used the word naive, or his grandparents did, in a way that meant uh, something more neutral and sometimes even positive. Uh, It actually meant that which is innate or inborn or already inside of you, or or in today's parlance, authentic, 
right? And so the dare to be naive as you dig into the book is actually a call back to authenticity and being even more genuine. I love that. And where where along the road through history did did it start to change? Do, do you know? Did you get to that when you was doing some of your research? I did. And and that also was fascinating because it plays into it. It was really during the time of colonialism and uh, during you know some of the, the age of enlightenment when uh, being native, which is the root word of naive, actually became a bad thing, right? And, and you, were not, you were not wise enough or enlightened enough and uh, being native was seen as being too primitive. And if you see, like that is cascaded in through today, which is if you're not following along with mainstream reason, that's oftentimes when you're being called naive or unsophisticated. And yet, through the research and the interviews that I did, I kept running into leaders who said, ah, this might sound naive, but, and then shared an amazing story or philosophy or business practice that I thought, what would the world be like if just more people leaned into a chosen naivete? Yeah. So I, I, I love that. So it's almost, we as leaders could phrase that pretext or setup slightly differently couldn't we instead of saying this might sound naive we i don't know what we could say like um hey guys thinking a little different or being bold here what about it sounds like that's what we're really trying to trying to get to right i i think so and 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 also i think there's even something deeper as as a leader which is I found that a lot of times those ideas that people wanted to put out actually are coming from an authentic place. And oftentimes for me, it came from a place of, when I studied it, curiosity or goodness or something that kind of hints at a person's potential, right? And what they're able to bring out. And so they used that that qualifier. This might sound naive as almost like a protection mechanism. And so a part of the book is actually about helping leaders explore what are some of those beliefs that sometimes limit you from putting uh, maybe some of your boldest or bravest or best ideas forward? Uh, and, and how do you understand your relationship to some of those limiting beliefs? Yeah, one of those, one of the examples that resonates with me from your book as you as you were speaking there, of some of those ideas that we that we have that come from a really good place is the the chapter where you're talking about the case study of the organization not only allowing people to have, but encouraging their side hustles. <laughs> Whereas some people might go like, why are you going to encourage people to do that? Because they're taking the company dollar dollar and dime and they're, and they're not working for us. What if the time they spend on their side hustle tips and kind of they're, they're not giving us what we're paying them for? That, that's one of those examples, right? 100%. And uh, now that people know that's in the book, they're probably going to be afraid to give that to their employees. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but So let me first give the announcement that it doesn't advocate saying, go do this thing. Uh, but what it does in that particular chapter is it highlights interesting stories and even some research of people who have uh, been more open to, one, acknowledging and sometimes even encouraging those side hustles for people. But more importantly, that chapter, like all the others, end in uh, asking the reader to do some reflection. You know, the person may read all that and say, Joshua, that was that's terrible. Like that would never work. Well, each of those uh, chapters ends in questioning, OK, where did you learn that belief? Like maybe I can't trust people to do their job and have a side hustle. I'm OK with that being a belief that you hold. Just where did you learn that? Is it really true? And what do you gain and what do you lose by holding that belief? And I think that level of, of uh, reflection and um, 
you know, deep introspection is what I'm trying to invite leaders to get into, especially with how the world continues to change and evolve. Yeah, I mean, they're such powerful questions, aren't they? Because many of us probably don't know where many of our beliefs actually actually come from, or we just assume that, that they are true and they have such a such an impact on the decisions that we that we make and the choices that that we take right and if we are never pausing to to question them we're just bumbling along the road without really being particularly intentional about what it is we're 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 really doing and there could be a host of better ways of operating right they bring way better solutions opportunities and, and, and ideas you nailed it there, Ben. And uh, the epigraph to the second part of my book is a quote by Douglas McGregor, uh, which is, in essence, I'll paraphrase, that behind every management decision and system are assumptions about human behavior and human nature. And that's that's extremely true. Again, back to should you have side hustles or not? Should you allow people to work from home or not? The, the wise leader takes a step back and realizes that some of their own biases or beliefs that they have influence those things. Uh, you know, another part of the book, I dig into really how we've had so many great advances during the industrial age and, and you know, scientific management and, and, and a lot of those things that have, that have given us a lot of benefits to society. But if you look back at some of those beliefs, for instance, that Frederick Taylor espoused that led to some of the things, you realize that there were beliefs about human nature that fundamentally people are disagreeing with nowadays. And therefore, like we also need to be open to then how those practices are evolving. And so, yeah, d- deep introspection is, is what I'm asking for leaders to do. Yeah, this also reminds me of an episode I recorded just a few weeks back with a gentleman called Simon Ursel, who's the managing director of a environmental consultancy in, in the UK who for a long time had been exploring and transitioning his business to a four-day work week. Mm. And then he became part of the UK national trial and, and study into, into how, it, how it worked. And as we're sitting here talking about what are some of the beliefs that drive our, our behaviors, that's, that's a classic one, right? We just have this belief that Work is something that we do five days a week, generally from, from nine, nine to five. And as Simon said in this podcast, said, I'm not advocating that you switch your business to a four-day week. He said, because that won't necessarily work for everybody. So what I am advocating is that you stop and think, like, what is the most effective way for our organization to, to run? Because it's not necessarily five days a week, Monday to Friday, right? That yeah. largely comes from... Henry Ford, I, I believe, the seventh day was the Sabbath, so he had to rest. On the sixth day, he wanted people driving around in his cars for, for marketing purposes, and we ended on the five-day week, so I'm told. Um, but that's a great example, isn't it, of just challenging those, those beliefs. You nailed it there. And, and when we start to understand the agency that we have as leaders to not only challenge those beliefs, but kick off the change that we want to see in our organizations and the communities like that is extremely powerful. So mm-hmm. another concept I discuss in the book is that leaders of the future are going to be interested in two different types of ROI, right? A traditional return on investment, but also uh, something that I learned that was called ripples of impact. 
And that idea of ripples of impact has been around for a while, but it's in essence, you know, how are you creating virtuous circles? How are you creating things uh, in your organization in a way that, that, that perpetuates more of what you're wanting to see? You know, there's one of the chapters in the book talks about a traditional manufacturing group, you know, that was the traditional clock in, clock out, uh, a specific story in there of someone who lost their pair of work gloves and, and had to waste uh, time, you know, and, and ended up 10 times the amount of cost of even what the work gloves did because they had to follow all the procedures. And, and uh, Jean-Francois, a, a French company, uh, Favi, uh, basically flipped it on his head and said, what would happen if we started this virtuous cycle off with trusting that people are good and trusting that people have great intentions? And then we use that to build new practices off of. And uh, what you saw was, again, that perpetuated then even more good and people believing that they were good and people wanting to live into their full potential and uh, created amazing business results for that organization. And so, you know, back to the example that you used from your previous episode, I don't know if four day work week is the right one. Uh, I think each organization will need to step back and figure out what's right for their culture. But what I love about it is it's the intentionality of stopping back and, and realizing what's driving this decision. And then how might a different belief, sometimes even a naive belief, kick off the change that we hope to see? Yeah, that story that you touched on there and is in the book about the process of getting a new pair of gloves for an employee when, when they wear out. <laughs> Again, that's very typical, isn't it, of what happens in, in lots of organizations in so much as we might apply some sort of draconian policy to everybody that really is designed to deal with the odd one person out of hundreds or thousands that might try and get one over on, on, on the company. Whereas why, yep. why not flip that? Why not trust the 99.9% who are going to come to work and do their best and, and deal with the one person who doesn't when and if they, when and if they don't? You, <laughs> you see it so much in, in terms of HR policies, right, that are applied to, to everybody. And then we wonder why people don't feel trusted and, and, and empowered because... We're not treating them in that way. You're, you're exactly right, Ben. You're exactly right. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, again, it's on page one of the book, and I've, I've got it here in front of me. Towards the bottom, you said, eventually I learned that this fear of being naive was actually preventing me from having a greater impact in business mm. and, and life. Like, was there sort of a defining moment where that started to become clear? And if so, like what, what shifted for you in that moment? I think there have been a few. As I share in the book, I, I always wanted to be seen as really smart, smartest guy in the room and was rewarded a lot for that as, as a kid. And uh, there were times, especially uh, when I was taking out early new consultants, I, I, I was in consulting my first 10 years of life, I still am, but uh, that there would be times where I was set to go out and train and coach and grow other younger consultants than me. And uh, I didn't have the patience sometimes, right? They, they make a misstep and... I would end up wanting to jump in because I knew the right way that something needed to happen. And I, and I hurt relationships that way. And I didn't actually create the space for people to grow um, in those ways. And so there are some definitely uh, a few early defining moments in my career that marked that. And I would say it's been probably then a continual lesson over time where uh, each time I have to be able to come back and hold a little bit more loosely that I think I know what is right and be open to the curiosity of that there might be a better way. I even just wrote a, a piece recently on 
the consultants who are able to say, I don't know, right? I think it's a new breed of consultant, right? That, that is able to go in there because traditionally you're hired because you're the person with the answers. And yet we're in a space more than ever that if you're just looking to go lift and shift the best practice from another organization into yours, it's likely not going to work. We're working with too many complex issues. We instead need to help organizations figure out how to adapt in those ways and give them opportunities to practice and 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 evolve. That piece there about when you was working with the new consultants is, is really interesting and really resonates with me, actually. I've not thought about this for, for a long time. My second job after leaving, leaving the military was working for the big retailer in the UK, Tesco. I was working in their learning development department. And we had a young graduate, a guy called Doug Hobson, who, who was working with us, who's gone on to do, do amazing things. Uh, but he was shadowing me as we was delivering a two-day training course for one of the very sort of small subsidiaries in the sort of car automotive space. And it was typical, it was like an embedded working practice at Tesco at the time. That after every meeting, you'd do something called B's and C's, benefits and concerns. So you grab a flip chart, ask everybody benefits from this meeting, anything that concerns you before we leave to capture it. And we'd done the first day and I jumped up to the flip chart with, with B's and C's and there was loads of great benefits. And then one guy said, said, yeah, I've got a concern, Ben. He said, why have you not let Doug do anything today? Huh. And it almost like knocked me over. Like I, to your point, I think, I think similar to you, I was so probably focused on me doing a good job, me being a great facilitator. I was trying to role model and demonstrate to, to Doug, but I just made this assumption that he was too junior, not ready to do any facilitation left. So kind of, I was just going to let him kind of watch and observe. And then we would chat, chat in the evening. I was thought, oh, he's right. I should have just let him step up and step forward on a, on a piece of the content and let him deliver. And I could have been there to, to catch him and, and help if he stumbled, but I didn't give it, didn't give him the chance, which is really kind of ego, right? It's what's, what's driving that, that decision. That's a great story, Ben. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and it goes back to, again, the deeper definition of naivete for me, which is that which is authentic or innate or already something inside of you. Mm. And I think a lot of our journey, and I think work is a great refiner for us if we let it, is about continuing to uncover what is that authentic innate voice that we want to emerge. And, and to your point, sometimes it is quieting ego, or at least keep bringing it into balance with yeah. Uh, the benefits that, that come from that and being open to, as I talk about in the book, a little bit sometimes more intuitive sense of, of, of help getting through some of the work that you're doing. Yeah. Hey, quick one for you. I want to make sure that you know about my 10 for 10 leadership program. It's an online program that's totally free. It's bite-sized and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I frequently get asked about. It's also a course that gets consistently great feedback. You can find out more by heading to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com. The other thing you spoke about in the book that I found really, really interesting was where you described pragmatism and naivety as almost opposite ends of a, of a spectrum as opposed to being a, a dichotomy where they're two completely completely different things can can you tell us a, a little bit more about that and sort of as, as you have explored naivety how 
what you see is the benefits and risks of both both approaches yeah. i guess yeah yeah so so what you're talking about is something uh, a model that i probably use in a lot of times in life very rarely is there a binary thing we're looking at or a dichotomy mm -hmm. it's almost always about managing tensions or polarities right and and so for this book I, I, and through the research it seemed that uh, it is really about a spectrum of naivete to cynicism or pragmatism on the other side of it. And what I advocate for is, is, is I'm not telling people they should go be so naive that they're willfully ignorant, <laughs> if you will, right? There, there are some benefits to a certain amount of chosen naivete, as we said, being able to admit I might be wrong, being able to be curious, being able to pause and listen to the other parts of you that are trying to speak. On the other side, uh, being very pragmatic, even sometimes to the point of cynical, there's a place for that in the world in some ways, right? And yet that can also be taken to an extreme. And, uh, you know, whether whether it's just uh, holding you back from opportunities or, or other things in life to even, you know, as I talk about in the book, some health risks that start to come up with overly cynical people. So, so it, it is about tensions to be able to manage. And my invitation to people is, is to start to understand that your beliefs, wherever they're at on that spectrum, can evolve, they can shift. And it is about being aware of, of those sorts of things and, and not being able to lock into one or the other. Hmm. And do you think if we perhaps take the modern day definition of, of the word? Yeah. And I'll probably need to give some context to this question. Do you think there is some benefit in, at times, almost having a pretend na naivety? And the one example that, that springs to mind for me is, again, I happened to have a phone call with my solicitor earlier this week because we're updating all of our le legal terms and conditions. And he's an interesting guy. Normally when I speak to him, it's normally via email and maybe it's typical of solicitors. I get very sort of clipped responses back to him because he's working at million miles an hour on, on a million responses. I've never really had much of a conversation with the guy. And this this call, it just so happened that he was uh, driving his car, taking his son somewhere or on the way to pick his son up, I think, from university. So I caught him in a very different different space. And he just wanted to chat and chat and chat. And he started off sharing a story. Um, in fact, we referenced him a few times today, sharing a story of Henry Ford. Now, it's one of those stories, who knows if it's true or not, but where he'd taken two prospective job candidates out, out to dinner. And at the end of the dinner, he turned to one person and says, thank you very much, call my secretary or whatever, I'd like to offer you the job. And to the other guy, basically, he doesn't give the job. The other guy says, well, how come he's getting the job and, and I'm not? And the story is, kind of Henry Ford said, well, uh, you ordered the steak. It's the best steak restaurant in town. Straight away, uh, you put salt on it without, without tasting. Um, and, and I forget what the, what the analogy he made there was, but um, like, I want people to, to try things before they change it. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the <laughs> other one was, he said, basically, you, you completely blanked the, the waiting staff in the hotel. You didn't acknowledge them. You didn't say thank you, thank you to them. Now, I'd heard that story before, and I thought, well, what's the most useful thing to, to do? And I caught myself having that thought process. Do I say, oh, yeah, I know I know that. Thanks, thanks, Duncan. Or I just go, oh, that's a great story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So there was almost 
I, I chose to that pretense of not knowing, being being naive there, because actually, I, why do I need to say, yeah, I, I know that probably again speaks to speaks to ego. And if you carry that into the work context, doing that more often, if we're always saying as the the boss and invert, yeah, I, I, I know, thanks for thanks, but I know we're going to condition people to share stories and ideas, not to share stories and ideas, right? So just wonder if you've got a, a thought on that and how it, how it fits with what we're talking about here. I think it does. It goes back again to what you had mentioned of how are you being perceived and what story are you telling yourself, right? In those types of, of situations. And if what we're inviting people into is greater self-awareness and reflection, how are you creating space for yourself to respond in those types of situations? What, what, what resonated for me in that story with the solicitor was what if you assumed positive intent in the story that they were giving to you or, or put it in a different way, what is the most generous explanation I can provide to what just happened, mm. <laughs> right? That, that's, a, that's a traditional naive belief, right? The, and, and if I come at it from that standpoint, I might say, you know what, this person was trying to be helpful, or maybe they were trying to share some of the, I can be gracious and receive that uh, in in, in a good way. And so in those moments, I think, yeah, you might call it a naivete uh, of sorts. Um, I like your point of, again, of it's not faked. I actually call it chosen naivete. Mm. It's it's not throwing rationality out the window. In fact, um, some of the research that I saw is, is it's a return to childlike naivete with like a mature, more holistic thinking that comes with it. So it's actually something a little bit beyond even just pure rational thinking. And so what you did there is you took into account the facts, the things you know, and and then you had a generous interpretation of what's going on with this. You even set your ego aside. Love it, right? Great chosen naivete there. Brilliant. So if we start to make this a little bit uh, practical, Joshua, what what are some of your tips? What would you suggest for for leaders to start experimenting with deliberate and maybe intentional naivety? You're like, what what could we do? What could that look like? Yep, it, it could look like in the next meeting that you have with someone, especially if it's a team that you lead, creating a little bit more space before responding. Right, an example of what you just shared there. Being able to admit, I do not know. A lot of the work that our consulting company does is in helping organizations with innovation strategy and setting up innovation systems. And so we're working constantly with executive teams on what is needed to start to be more ambidextrous in the management of the org. Like, how do you keep executing uh, the things you need to do and optimizing and create the space to think and try and be curious, et cetera? And one of the practical things we tell them is, is they need to figure out how to end their addiction to being right, <laughs> right? Over here, it pays to be right. Over here, like trying to be right and being the smartest in the room, like we talked about earlier, actually, you may miss the next greatest idea. And so ending your addiction to being right sometimes is holding space and saying, I might be wrong, or I've thought about this and showing some vulnerability. Uh, another piece of that uh, that we talk about is expiring your data. And so a very practical thing that you can do is to say, uh, things are changing. Am I using something that I learned from more than a year ago to make this decision? Oh, that's interesting. Okay. If, if, if that's the case, at least be open a little bit more to rethinking what's going on. 
right? And, and, and both of those two things, if you start to think about it, just create more space to say, hmm, I might be wrong, or at least might help you embrace that, that the old rational thinking of everything has to be this way and things haven't changed and I have to be right, that maybe there's another thing to consider at that time. Yeah. It's interesting you use the word addiction there in terms of being, being right. Because in many ways, I I think it's the right the right word, isn't it? That we and often it's it's born out of to quote the, the the book "What Got You Here Won't Get You There" by Marshall Goldsmith, right? All the stuff that's got many of us to to where we are, got us the job titles that we've got. It's about being successful, delivering, executing, often being being right, and we can we can get so hung up on it, can't we? Even like you know it's you if you do it with your kids right <laughs> I, I had it the other day with my daughter I mean like yeah last night we we're talking about um how many football pitches there are at a particular school where she's playing a match soon and I'm like there's, there's two pitches there for her. She's like no daddy there's three I'm like I know there's two <laughs> there's absolutely two and then I, can you just catch yourself going oh my god I'm I'm, I'm arguing <laughs> two for now with my 11 year old because i've got to be right like I, i've got an addiction problem here i need to <laughs> i need to let go i don't need to be right who cares <laughs> it is really hard to your point we've been rewarded for it not just only in work but in school uh right that entire time you you're rewarded with the right answer or not and so uh it, it is very difficult to now say both you and i and our work is to help organizations grow and lead we're getting asked more and more to actually start to break some of those habits that have probably been reinforced for 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, therefore, on a side note, some of the greatest philanthropic work and pro bono work that our organization does is with earlier childhood education and looking at alternative approaches to uh, teaching entrepreneurship and creativity and other things earlier on in life. Brilliant. Joshua, before we wrap up with, with a few of my regular quickfire questions, um, let me just ask, when actually is the book out? How can people get hold of it to, to read a copy, which folks, I, I, I highly recommend. Thank you, Ben. Uh, again, the book is called Dare to be Naive, Unleash Ripples of Impact in Life and Business. Uh, you'll be able to find it on any of uh, the classic online sites, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Books A Million, or IndieBound to be able to find your, your local independent bookstore. Uh, we are exploring, uh, so it is being uh, distributed first here in the U.S., but we are uh, working with a distributor to understand where uh, we'll be able to have foreign uh, distribution rights on that. Uh, so hopefully all that will be in place by this summer or early fall. Great. Well, we'll make sure we at least pop the Amazon link into the show notes, folks, so you can just click on there straight away and grab a copy. Yeah. Oh, you get the ebook or the audiobook. Those are always the easiest. Those will also be there this summer or the fall. Awesome. Joshua, two quick fire questions to wrap up this episode. Probably other than the process of writing your own, um, because that would probably be my answer. But what would you say is the one book that has really had the most significant impact upon you? Or I always like to ask the question a, a second way. Um, it could be, which is the one book that you find yourself frequently recommending or gifting to other people? Oh, boy. Um, I read a lot of books. 
and my friends also know I'm terrible with superlative questions. So, so my first cop-out answer is m- the most impactful book is always seems to be the next book <laughs> that I read. Right. Because there have been times in my life I can point to specific books. Like I explored seminary once. There was a book that helped me with that. Years later, there was a book uh, reading Sapiens and then Why Buddhism is True. Like those two books became extremely impactful that evolved me in a certain way. A Brave New Work is a book that just came out in the last year or two from Aaron Dignan, uh, and and that shifted a number of the things that we're thinking about. But the book that I probably gift the most to people is The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Right, yeah. Uh, classic book, a lot of great things, and I probably take snippets of that, especially on kids, the one on kids, on work, on marriage, and send those snippets to people quite often. Okay. So this question is an extra one, which comes from the from the coach in me. I can't I can't help it. I'm really intrigued by the fact that you said the most impactful one is the next one, whereas I would have said the the, the last one. What, what was going on for you there? Why the next one? <laughs> one, I have a struggle uh, with stopping and enjoying the moment, and two, I look to in books as a way that answers emerge for me. And so I truly do believe the next book that arrives has something that I need in it to understand. And, and again, I don't know if it's extremely intentional in that way, but it always seems like the next book helps me with the next thing that I need to do. I'll even find it in like fantasy books. I just, I just got done rereading um, a couple books uh, from Patrick Rothfuss, uh, the King killer Chronicles. And of course, I extrapolated out of one of those, like something that I was needing to work through at that time. So it always seems to be the next book. Love, love <laughs> that. And final question, Joshua, other than your mobile phone, what is the one item that you would find yourself immediately replacing if it were to be lost, broken or stolen? Okay, my mind went immediately practical. I went to bed, uh, but <laughs> let's go to something more fun than that. Um, my Chemex uh, carafe, so for pour over coffee, if that was broken, uh, or we have a we have a neutral bullet, kind of like a ninja little uh, smoothie maker sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. My wife and I use that twice a day and have probably for the last seven or eight years, and so uh, we have absolutely replaced that four or five times yeah. uh, in that time frame. So. I just I just love this question because we get so many amazing answers that range from like somebody said my dignity. Somebody said their piano. Another lady said wow. her oven. Just the the question, the answers you get to this question are, are super cool and interesting. Like a psychologist would probably have a field day kind of analyzing it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Great question, Ben. Joshua, thank you so much for your time on the show today. I've loved chatting to you. There have been so many insights, golden nuggets, bit of practical advice that um, I can take away and for sure that everybody listening can take away. So thank you so much and um, all the very best of luck with with the book. As I said earlier on, it's a really great book. So thank you very much for, for writing it and thank you for sharing a copy with me. Ben, this has been wonderful. Uh, so enjoyable. We should do it again next week, right? <laughs> There you have it, folks. That was episode 121 of the show. And I'd love to know what you thought of it and whether or not it resonates with you. 
do connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know what you think there. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm there as Ben Morton Leadership. Or alternatively, just click on the feedback link in the show notes where you can tell me what you think, give me some feedback on the show, or even suggest a guest that you'd like me to interview on your behalf. And whilst you're there looking at the show notes, do remember to check out the 10 for 10 leadership course that I mentioned to you. And finally, one final thing, which would be absolutely awesome if you could take just a few minutes to rate and review the show wherever you happen to be listening. It really does make all the difference and enables us to continue bringing you more and more interviews with amazing leaders and genuine subject matter experts. That is it for this episode though, folks. Have a great week ahead. Look after yourself. Look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And as always, lead on.